Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. I love you too. (laughs) The feeling is mutual. (laughs) What a good day, huh? Well, you guys, I just have a single-minded goal tonight, okay? To torment the tormentor. Christian recreation at its finest, you know? So it's not always my goal, but sometimes I show up just to be a torment to the devil. (laughs) You know, the sound of your laughter makes him nauseous. (laughs) When he sees your hope Running into impossible scenarios, he has anxiety welling up in his soul. And when he sees your unshakable faith, no matter what wind blows, no matter the storm, no matter how high the water rises, he's reminded that it's finished. And, you know, Jesus walked the earth with a mandate to destroy the works of the devil through intimacy with his father. And he passed the baton to us and said, let your love for me be a torment to the devil. (laughs) Let your overwhelming passion for who I am remind him of his destiny. (laughs) And, you know, for years of my life, I wrestled with this feeling of disconnection from the Lord. You know, I would pop in, pop out, and would just live as a normal with this anxiety underlining in my soul, Ah, I'm not connected. And this feeling of I'm looking from the outside with my face pressed against this see-through wall that I just can't seem to get on the other side of. And and um, for years, I just felt tormented um, by, by what I didn't realize was a lie. And so I would just love to invite you a little bit into that process. And, you know, one of, one of the greatest joys in our life, it's not just when we get breakthrough, but when we become a breakthrough. And, you know... The, the salvation and the breakthrough and whatever you've overcome in your lifetime, whatever your story is, the end of the story isn't that you got set free. <laughs> the end of the story is that everywhere you go, you're releasing a fragrance of who Jesus really is. <laughs> and when you get set free, your story is just starting. Because there is a message from the Father that's now resting on your life. And um, 
you know, I remember in, just in the thick of that wrestle one season, I, we were living in Reading and I was just laying on the carpet that had probably been there since 1977. And <laughs> that's how desperate I was, okay? And I was just breathing in just built up odor from years and years of. <laughs> and I was just pouring out my soul. I, I just feel alone. I don't feel connected. And I remember the spirit of the Lord blew into to my room. And one of the things he said was, if, if I were to leave you and forsake you, I would have to go all the way back to Abraham and break my promise. And a journey of realizing our story is not our own. Our, our story is in the context of a massive story that we are living in the context of generations of legacy of fathers and mothers walking with the presence of the Lord. And to truly understand our place in that story, we have to look at the context of what's been being written from the beginning of time. And so I, I just wanna address uh, some of those lies that I wrestled with for so many years in the context of Peter's life. Does anybody feel encouraged by Peter ever? Let's read that story again when he messed it up. Let, let's read that story again. Read it again. Jesus responded so calm. Let's read it again. And, you know, we're going to land in a couple, couple scriptures, but Peter starts out in Luke 5 meeting Jesus for the first time because he's out in a boat fishing and he sees this massive crowd is forming around Jesus and Jesus is teaching and he says, um, hey, Peter, let me borrow your boat. And so Jesus steps on to Peter's boat. Like there he is, the right place at the right time. And Jesus starts preaching off of Peter's boat. And, it, and the Bible says that when everybody left, Jesus said, hey, take your boat back out there and, and put your nets back in the sea. And he, he's like, well, let me just tell you, we've been doing that all day and, and we caught nothing, <laughs> you know? And just, just so we're in an honest relationship right out from the, from the front gate. And so Peter goes out and they pull in so many fish uh, between two boats that their boats start to sink. And Peter, seeing this miracle, the Bible says he runs to the feet of Jesus. And he, he feels unworthy because he recognizes, oh, I'm, I'm in the presence of something I've never tasted before. And, you know, the, the beautiful reminder is that miracles are not the end. Miracles are the invitation. And we're a culture that so highly values miracles because it's the primary way Jesus manifested the nature of the Father. But, but it's not the end. When we tell a testimony, when we see unbelievable things happening before our eyes, 
it's not the end. It's just the beginning. It's an invitation into the nature of the Father, into the kindness of Jesus. And Peter took that invitation, and he left his boat. He left, I mean, one commentary said it would have been two weeks worth of steady, consistent fishing to get the amount that they did. He, he left the profit from all of those fish and allowed the miracle to, to open up an invitation to know Jesus. And he starts following him. And, you know, following Jesus before the resurrection is a lot different than following Jesus after the resurrection. And I remember for so long thinking, I wish I could have just like lived with him. Then I would have just felt so connected. You know, like you wake up every day, there's Jesus. He's just doing his Jesus thing, you know. Like, like the disciples' life was literally just following Jesus. Like that's what they did. That was their livelihood. Jesus is just going to take care of it. We'll multiply food. We'll find money in, in the mouths of fish. Like following Jesus was their sustenance, was literally the source of their life. Following Jesus was Peter's entire purpose. He, he gave up everything he knew to be a follower of Jesus. And, you know, we see him in so many of the stories of the Gospels, he's constantly mentioned. Where some of the disciples, you're like, who, who are you again? You know, like, Bartholomew? You, you showed up like one time. What, what happened there, you know? But Peter is constantly in, injected in all of these stories. Some, sometimes, I think, probably just to help us. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of them was when the woman with the issue of blood was happening and Jesus was like, who touched me? And people, the Bible says people are thronging around him. The crowd is so thick that people are violently pushing all around Jesus. And Peter's the first one documented to, to well, I'll be happy to give you feedback. All of these people are touching you. All of them. And... You know, and then in the very next story, uh, Jarius, you know, his, his daughter ends up passing away. And they come to him and say, you know, just leave, leave the teacher alone. It's too late. And Peter is one of the three invited into the house to pray over this little girl. And Peter was one of the three that was invited up to the top of the mountain when um, Jesus started glowing a bright white like the earth had never known. And, and there's repeatedly, you know, um, a picture painted of Peter that he had access, that he had a level of intimacy and invitation that was beautiful with the Lord. And, you know, one of my favorite stories was when Jesus is letting them know, hey, I'm, I'm about to suffer greatly. Like, I, I'm, I'm about to be crucified. And Peter, it's, the Bible says Peter pulled Jesus aside and began rebuking him, like, over and over. <laughs> like, I'm going to do this in an honorable way, not in front of the others, so you don't feel embarrassed that <laughs> your entire life mission is about to be corrected by me. 
And it's just baffling to me that Jesus was able to create an environment around himself where Peter felt like he over and over had the freedom to tell the truth of what was in his mind. (laughs) That Peter never felt like he had to pretend, I know what you're talking about. You know, like, no, this is a terrible idea. And love would tell you, this is a terrible idea. This is not what the Messiah, the Savior of the world should do. You know, and when, you know, in John 14, Jesus, you know, it sounds like he spends a good amount of time letting them know what's about to happen. I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Peter's the one that pipes up. We have no idea where you're going. (laughs) And sometimes I just imagine them talking in a circle, looking around like, Really, I'm always the one that has to let him know what we are corporately thinking? No, we don't know. We have no idea where you're going, and we're totally stressed out that you think we know where you're going. (laughs) And Peter says, I will follow you anywhere. I would die for you. You remember that? And he, he's trying to let Jesus know in his genuine affection, in his genuine love, I'll take your place. Oh, if, if, if this is what you have to do, let me do it for you. And what, what a beautiful, obvious love when you love someone like that. You know, has anybody ever thought of their kids like that? Ah, I wish I could take this pain from you. And... Peter genuinely thought he could be a part of Jesus' mission to set all of mankind free forever. And Jesus meets him with his honest feedback. Peter, would you really give your life for me? Because I'll tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows three times, you will deny you even knew me. And could you imagine you've only known Jesus to tell the truth, and everything he says comes to pass. I mean, like, he's literally stopping funeral lines, mothers wailing over their weeping child, over their completely dead child, and Jesus being moved with compassion says, lift lift the casket, and never once did a word of Jesus fall to the ground, but Everything Jesus said responded immediately. And so you're, you're sitting in, in that realization. Everything he has ever said has immediately happened. And Jesus doesn't even give time for him to ask questions. He just says, don't be troubled. You know, that famous verse we all cling to when we feel troubled. Don't be troubled. Trust in me. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Trust me that I'm going to prepare a place of rest for you. And, you know, I I want us to open up to Luke 22 and land here for a second. 
And this is the story of when the rooster crowed. And we're going to start in verse 14. And it says, the religious leaders seized Jesus and led him away. But Peter followed from a safe distance. They brought him to the home of the high priest where people were already gathered out in the courtyard. Someone had built a fire, so Peter inched closer and sat down among them to stay warm. A girl noticed Peter sitting in the firelight, staring at him. She pointed him out and said, this man is one of Jesus' disciples. Peter flatly denied it, saying, what are you talking about, girl? I don't know him. A little while later, someone else spotted Peter and said, I recognize you. You're one of his. I know it. Peter again said, I'm not one of his disciples. About an hour later, someone else identified Peter and insisted he was a disciple of Jesus, saying, look at him. He's from Galilee, just like Jesus. I know he's one of them. But Peter was adamant. Listen, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't you understand? I don't even know him. While the words were still in his mouth, the rooster crowed. And at that moment, the Lord was being led through the courtyard by his captors and turned around and gazed at Peter. All at once, Peter remembered the words Jesus had prophesied over him. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Peter burst into tears and ran away from the crowd and wept bitterly. And those who were guarding Jesus mocked and beat him severely. And I just want us just to step for a moment into that courtyard. If, if we could just imagine the weight of a moment that you just, you just denied knowing the greatest joy you have ever known in the whole of your life. Peter was the one when all the disciples were fleeing. He, he, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, are you going to go too? And Peter's the one that bursts out, where would we go? <laughs> There's nowhere to move on from here. You have the words of eternal life. He had fallen in love with Jesus. He was the one that said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. And three times before the rooster crowed, he just denied even knowing him. And Jesus is walking through the courtyard at that very moment, and they make eye contact. And if you could just imagine the weight of that moment for Peter. He is gazing on the worst moment of your entire life. And he knows what's about to happen to Jesus. And you know, I've found that the lie, I am not connected to Jesus. I'm on the outside looking in is intimately tied to this accusation that says, I am not enough. 
And the goal is to get us wrapped up in the wrong conversation. Because in this moment, Peter was clearly not enough. All of Peter's pursuits in following Jesus, staying connected to Jesus, cultivating intimacy with Jesus, couldn't even keep him until the morning when the rooster crowed. He thought he could step into Jesus' shoes. I'll do this for you. And the greatest moment of our life is the moment when we wake up to the reality of, I'm not enough. <laughs> I'm not enough. I will never be enough to keep me connected to you. And you know, religion wants, wants to entangle our soul in spending the rest of our lifetime proving we're better than our worst moment. Oh, I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna do this better. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna grow. I'm gonna work on a strategy like never before to stay connected to Jesus. I'm gonna get better, I'm gonna do better. And you know, religion, the number one thing it wants to steal from us in that performance cycle is our awe of Jesus, is the beauty of what Jesus has eternally done that we never could have stepped in his shoes to do. And you know, religion wants to say, when he walked through that courtyard, he was gazing at you disappointed. He was gazing, he was looking down on your betrayal with a disappointment that can never be satisfied. And there's such a cruelty connected to what would ever come out of the fire in Jesus's eyes towards his people. And you know, when Jesus gazed at Peter, when we're looking at the context of the nature of Jesus, the context of the whole storyline, Jesus already knew what was going to happen. He prophesied. He, he stated clearly, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And, you know, when, when he was walking through that courtyard, he wasn't shocked at Peter's choices. I think he was sending an invitation. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me moving forward no matter what you do. Look at me completely unaffected by your terrible choices. Look at me. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beat. I'm literally being led by my captors. And in a moment, Jesus could have stopped it all and said, if, if my dearest friend isn't worth it, if my dearest friend can't even stay connected until the rooster crows, is this worth it? And, and you know, Jesus is sending a message. You don't define me. Your access to me these last three years, the way you felt you had significance with me is true. The way that you had 
intimacy with me is true. But you will never define who I am and what I do. On your best day, you don't decide my nature. And on your worst day, in your worst moment, you don't get to decide what I do. I love you because I love you. I, I am merciful because I'm merciful. And, you know, the performance cycle wants us to believe that we're more or less accepted based on what we do. That we have more or less access based on what we do. And, you know, I remember seasons of my life when I was single, I would spend hours at a time in, in the prayer chapel, wherever I was at, there always seemed to be a prayer chapel. And I didn't know that one day I wouldn't have that much time. <laughs> and I would literally just get lost for hours just investing in my connection with the Lord. And even still, there was this underlining anxiety like, oh, I'm going to lose something. If, if I'm mean, like, uh, an anxiety was underneath there, even in the most glorious times of connection with the Lord. And when I got married and had kids, I, I literally took on a role that uh, is present 365 days, 24 hours a day. Like, there's no, like, time clock. You can, like, I'm going to go on break now. You know, it's like, oh, it's 2 a.m., here I am. Like, this is, this is my life. <laughs> oh, you know, and I would try to get up early to spend time with the Lord, and I, I was like, I'm so tired. And I, I just felt this constant state of failure in my connection with the Lord just running me over, you know. And I just grew up knowing the value of having devotions in the morning, reading your Bible. And I remember the one day the Lord uh, just drawing attention to this pattern I had created of feeling anxiety if I didn't get my time with the Lord, my time with the Lord. And, uh, and it just felt like gentle nudges of questions. So if you feel anxiety when you don't get your devotional time with me, is, what is keeping you connected to me? What you do, what you do is keeping you connected to me? Because it feels like there's very little trust needed to stay connected to me. If, if your confidence is resting on what you do or do not do. And I haven't called you to have a devotional time every day. I've called you to live a life of devotion every day. And that there is not one minute in your day that's more spiritual than any other minute in your day. And when you are up at 2 a.m. exhausted and tired, it's not more spiritual than when you're meditating on my promises. And I, I didn't pay such an extraordinary price so that you could come into the temple 
at allotted hours when you have time to yourself and create something beautiful with me. I said, I was going away so that you could become a dwelling place. I I was going to pay an extraordinary price so that you would never one moment of all of your days ever have to live disconnected from me ever again. And when all of your confidence is resting on what you do or do not do, you've been intimate with a religious spirit. You've been intimate with a spirit of performance. Because when I walk by your most shining moment when you were patient and kind, and when I walk by in the courtyard to your worst moment of failure, nothing about me and my heart towards you changes. And, you know, the, the time that passes between Peter, that was his last encounter with Jesus. They were somehow completely shocked when Jesus rose from the dead. You know, do you ever just read the stories and reread the stories and you're like, Jesus, like, he so clearly laid it out. I will rise again on the third day. Like several times. This will be terrible. I will suffer. I will go somewhere you cannot go. You cannot wear these shoes and do what I'm about to do. But I will rise again, defeating everything that has separated me from you for the rest of time. And I will finish disconnection. But then they're shocked, you know? And so... If you could just imagine the space between Peter's last encounter with Jesus is the worst moment in his history with Jesus. And every time he woke up in the morning and he heard the rooster crow, I could imagine him weeping bitterly again and again and again. Like, I, I just did the unthinkable to literally the person I love most in my whole life. Like, there's no way around talking yourself out of, that was the lowest moment of my life. And for I don't know how many days, every morning he's waking up and the rooster's crowing and he's rehearsing. I mean, if it was me, this is what I would do. The Bible doesn't say that. But I I would not be thinking, hallelujah, it's finished. You know, I'd be thinking that I was the last, that was the last look Jesus gave me was in my worst moment of betrayal. And if you flip to John 21, Jesus is making his visits to his shocked disciples, you know. <laughs> I love it because at one point he's, he, he, the first thing he says to them is a, a rebuke, you know, <laughs> like, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, just, it's so helpful. So chapter 21 of John, verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared once again to a group of his disciples by Lake Galilee. 
It happened one day while Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Jacob, John, and two other disciples were all together. Peter told them, I'm going fishing. And they all replied, we'll go with you. And you can, you can insert a little commentary like our life is dumb. <laughs> our life is now dumb. So let's go fishing. <laughs> so they went out and fished through the night but caught nothing. Then at dawn, Jesus was standing there on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was him. And he called out to them saying, hey guys, did you catch any fish? Not a thing, they replied. And Jesus shouted to them, throw your net over the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did as he said, and they caught so many fish, they couldn't even pull the net in. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him. And because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. And you know, the, what did he know about Jesus? That the first thing he wanted to do was run towards him in all of his failure, in, in all of his performance that was way beyond painful, you know? And what did he know about the nature of Jesus? That he hears John say, it's the Lord. And he is the first one, the only one, jumping out of the boat, putting on his outer garment, and racing to Jesus. And you know, he, he is finishing the story. That you know, the, the story starts in the garden and they're putting on garments in shame, knowing I just made the biggest mess human history will be talking about for the rest of time, you know? <laughs> and they ran and hid from the presence of the Lord. And now we see Peter putting on his outer garment and racing to Jesus. That he knew something beautiful about the person of Jesus that is alive and well for us all to drink in. My shame doesn't keep me from Jesus. My failure doesn't keep me from Jesus. My insufficiency doesn't keep me from Jesus. My lack, my humanity, none of it keeps me from Jesus. But that we get to race into the presence of the Lord on our best days, on our worst days. There is never a limit to our access. And, you know, it says, he jumps into the lake and runs to Jesus. And the other disciples brought the boat to shore, dragging their catch. And, you know, Jesus said, and, and when they got to shore, they noticed a charcoal fire with some roasted fish and bread. And Jesus said, bring me some of the fish you just caught. So Peter waded into the water and helped pull the net to shore. It was full of many large fish. And, and Jesus says, come, let's have some breakfast together. And, you know, the, the very first thing 
Jesus wants to do with his friends is just be together. Just be together. He finished the wrestle once and for all over access to his presence. And, you know, the, I read this quote by Bob Goff the other day, and it said, the first thing Jesus did when he showed up to his disciples wasn't give a speech, but he made breakfast for his friends. And, you know, the, our, our humanity, our, I've got life to live. I've got people to feed. I've got floors to wash. I've got like 675 snacks a day to make. And your spirituality, your intimate connection with Jesus is not decreased because we're human. (laughs) He came and he had breakfast with his friends that no longer would they follow him physically. But after the resurrection, we would actually follow him because we're inside of him. And everything that I now do is spiritual. That, you know, we are, we are understanding that there's no such thing as spiritual and secular for the Christian. But it's not just in your profession. It's in your daily activities. I am a dwelling place of the Lord. As I'm doing this super mundane thing that feels it has no eternal significance, here I am. I am a dwelling place of the Lord. I am a habitation of heaven. And that, you know, I I cherish that the first thing Jesus did was have breakfast. It used to stress me out a little bit. It's like, was there no better food? I mean, is that you came hungry? You know, like that sounds a little stressful for the feasting tables and you wanted fish, you know? But he wanted to eat with his friends. And, you know, there, there is nothing in your life, if you are doing it, that is more or less spiritual. Even with our money, every single penny in our possession is a spiritual penny. And, you know, I'm, I'm a huge lover of tithing. I, from before we were even married... You know, we heard some incredible teaching on the gift it is to, to be able to tithe. And um, it's literal joy in my heart to tithe. Because I love to live a life that says, I belong to you. Every penny I have belongs to you. And this is an offering that says, my life is different because I belong to you. But I remember going on this journey with the Lord where we, we had this bill pop up that was unexpected and we had to write a big check to just to steward our home and take care of it. And I felt as I wrote the check, I, I was surprised by the presence of the Lord that washed over me as I washed the check. And it, it felt exactly like when the Lord would ask us to give Uh, an out-of-normal, extravagant gift to someone. And you know, when you feel, I feel the pleasure of the Lord in doing this. And I felt the pleasure of the Lord wash over me as I wrote a check to take care of our home. And I began to tap into this reality 
that every tiny thing I do with my money is spiritual. That every tiny thing I do with my time is spiritual. Because there is no part of your life that is excluded from being a habitation for Jesus. And, you know, when he showed up and had breakfast with his friends, it's nourishment to our daily life. It's nourishment to the type of intimacy he's looking for with us. And he goes in to have a conversation with Peter after they had breakfast in verse 15. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you burn with love for me more than these? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Then take care of my lambs. And Jesus repeated a second time, and then he goes in and repeats it a third time. And Peter was saddened by the third time. And he says, my Lord, you know everything. You know that I burn with love for you. And Jesus replied, then feed my lambs. Peter, listen. When you were younger, you made your own choices, and you went where you pleased. But one day when you are old, others will tie you up and escort you where you would not choose to go. And you will spread out your arms. And Jesus said, to, said this to Peter as a prophecy of what kind of death he would die for the glory of God. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Then Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the disciple who sat close to Jesus at the supper and had asked him, Lord, who is the one who will betray you? So when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus replied, if I decide to let him live until I return, what concern is that of yours? You must still keep on following me. And Peter is restored by Jesus asking questions. Do you love me? Look at me. Look at what I have done for you. Am I lovable? Am I wonderful? Am I your redemption, Peter? Are you hopeless to stay connected with me until the rooster crows? Are you hopeless without me, Peter? Gaze on my beauty. Look at what I have done for you. Love me with your whole mind, with your whole heart, with your whole strength. And then feed my sheep out of that. It's our love for Jesus that is to perpetuate the things we do. That performance is important. We can't all show up to work on Monday and say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> eh, it's all right. I'm set free. <laughs> no, like, like performance is important. It's just where we put it. Excellence is important. It's just where you put it. And it, it is tormenting if your performance is trying to prove something. It's tormenting if your performance is perpetuating a cycle with a conversation that I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. No, 
we arise and shine in the assignments we've been given because we love him, because we love what he's done for us, because we have a resting place in his presence, because everything has been bought and paid in full. And so now I have an endless well to give the best of me without fear. And, you know, I, I read this quote the other day that said, performance is being wrapped up in man's opinion. But excellence is being wrapped up in God's opinion. And, and Peter would one day, Jesus was prophesying, go on to die for him. When, when you know, just days before, that, that was never something that would be in sight. That he would die in love with his Savior. But in an, in an atmosphere of needing Jesus, of beholding Jesus, Peter would go on to request not to be crucified like Jesus, but he said, crucify me upside down, for I'm not worthy to die the same death my Savior did. Whoa, whoa. The things that we will do and accomplish because we're in him. We could never do and accomplish because we're trying to prove we belong. We're trying to prove I'm worth being connected. And so I just, I just want us to all stand up. And I just, I just want to feel excited about the opportunity to need Jesus, about the opportunity to trust in Jesus, about the opportunity to be undone by what he has done, to be overwhelmed with what, what he paid an extraordinary price that we would know. And grace is not free because it's cheap. Grace is free because he walked by you in the courtyard and he gazed on your worst moment, your, your deepest level of tragedy. Isaiah said he prophesied that the Savior of the world would become intimately acquainted with your grief, with your sorrow, with your sin, and he would put it upon himself and pay your debt. It's free. Access is free because it's been paid in full. And, and what is to constantly be growing in our lives as believers is a trust in Jesus, is a confidence in the finished work that gives me access morning, noon, and night. That every morning when I wake up and the rooster crows, I'm not going through a list of the places I missed it. Oh, I worried yesterday. Oh, was my motive all right? Ah, oh, I snapped at my kids there. Gosh, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks. And, and when the rooster crows in the morning, your portion is not thinking about every area of your life where you're not enough. It's a distracted conversation. And the goal of the enemy is to keep you away from this one question. In the morning when the rooster crows, is Jesus enough? 
Is Jesus enough? Is his mercy new for you? Is his kindness new for you? And we know we're free when our first thought is he's enough for me. He's enough for me. He's enough for me. I, I, I will boast in nothing but the finished work of Jesus. I'm going to make it my joy to be weak before him. He's enough for me. So I just want to finish with this one song that's been on my heart all week. Oh, Dara left. All right. And Josh isn't going to know this song because he didn't grow up in the church. So <laughs> we love Josh's story. He gave me great feedback last time. Um, it goes like this. Are you guys ready? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Yay. That's your story. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.